Many years ago, the pastor in California got a lot of attention in the news. He started a church that got very popular very quickly. And the name of the church was called Jerk Church. So if you're a misanthrope, if you're a curmudgeon, if you're just grouchy, they want you to come to their church. So it's a great name. It's catchy, gets attention, Jerk Church. So if you're a jerk, they want you to come. They even have signs on the walls of Jerk Church that say, sit down and shut up. Nobody cares what you think. So they're really speaking to the jerks of the world. And I, that's good, you know. Everyone needs Jesus. And, and consequently, most of the people that attend Jerk Church are men. So, uh, you know, if you're with your husband or your boyfriend's day, kind of nudge them. Honey, might want to check out Jerk Church. Maybe consider going to Jerk Church. But, um, but no, Jerk Church. And they, they had commandments, too, they post on the walls of this church. Of course, they have a Ten Commandments. They're a Christian church, but they have rules that abide by their, that frame their community values. You know, they live by and things like thou shalt tithe, thou shalt sing, thou shalt create harmony. That's all good stuff. And it's good to know that there are values and commandments that shape communities, not just communities of faith, but even corporations and businesses. There are values that shape who you are as a people. I've heard it said that Catholics have the St. Christopher's medallion, that Jewish people have the uh, Star of David, and Methodists have the casserole dish, you know? Or Baptists or Presbyterians would fall into that category. I thought about getting a casserole dish necklace one day. I thought that looked pretty sweet, gold casserole dish. But no, every, every religious organization has rules by which they frame who they are. Even here at Wesley Memorial, we have four areas of focus, worship, prayer, small groups, hands-on mission. The four things that we, as disciples, call this our church home, that we decide to focus on, we want to grow in, we want to be engaged with. But if all those things aren't done by love and for love, led by God's love, well, as Paul would say, they're just a clanging gong or a symbol, but love should be our defining characteristic as a people, that old song, that they will know we are Christians by our love, that even Jesus said that that is the greatest commandment, is to love God and love our neighbor, that we know that God is love, First John tells us that, and that we love others based on how God has loved us, that his love is the model or example by how we love the world around us. And we can't truly love our neighbor as they deserve until we really know deeper and deeper the love of God for us personally and individually and in a transformative way that's ongoing in our lives. And then I'm able to pour out more and more into the world around me so that we know that love is not just a theory. We know that love is more than that. It's not just lip service. That love is not just preference. Love is not just liking. Love is not just lusting. Love is not emotion. Those of us who have been married for a while, we all know that. We know that love is choice. Love is sacrifice. Love is faith and action. Even if the other person doesn't reciprocate the love. That we know that love is deeper than what the world defines it as. That love is all of those things. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus would actually teach about love in a way that maybe we didn't anticipate if you read that passage. Because Matthew 22 is pretty lengthy. And really what it is, is a, you call it a healthy dialogue, a debate, if you will, between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were, they were different denominations if, of the Jewish faith at that time. And they're having a, 
a robust back and forth, you could say. And that's good. It's good to have this back and forth dialogue. And as they're having this dialogue, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are throwing these crazy scenarios at Jesus. And they're trying to trap him in his own words so they could kill him, basically, and get rid of him. And so the Pharisees come first to Jesus with this scenario of saying, Teacher, should we pay taxes to Caesar, to Rome, or not? And they know that if Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Rome, then we can get him up on charges of sympathizing to Rome. He's a, he's a usurper of the Roman occupation. So we got him. Or if he says, don't pay taxes, then we know that he's not a sympathizer with Rome. Either way, we win. And then Jesus says, let me see the coin you're talking about. Whose face is on that coin? Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. Might drop. Jesus wins that one, as he always does. So here come the Sadducees. They come with their own crazy scenario. The Sadducees, who don't believe in the resurrection, give Jesus a scenario about the resurrection. And they say, teacher, Jesus, imagine there's a woman. And Jesus is like, okay. And the woman is married to a man. All right. Not implausible. And then the man dies. Okay. But then she marries the, the man's brother. Jesus is like, okay, not quite plausible, sort of Jerry Springer, but it could happen, it could happen. And then he dies. And then that guy, then the next brother marries her and on and on until she marries seven of the brothers. And then she dies. And Jesus is probably like, well, that's a sad story and completely impossible. But what's your point? And the Sadducees say, well, in the resurrection, whose husband will she be? Because she married all seven. And Jesus says, you don't understand the law, and you don't understand spiritual things, and you don't understand what heaven is like. Because in heaven, no one's married. You will be like the angels in heaven. Now, a side note there, we hear that, and we're married, and we think, well, that's kind of a bummer. I want to be married to my husband or my wife forever. But it's not about what we're losing in the life to come. Jesus is saying it's about what we gain in the life to come. It's even more intimate and deep and everlasting in relationships than we have even now. So it's not about what we lose in life to come, but it's about what we gain. So anyway, there's that scenario. They couldn't trap Jesus on that one. The Sadducees leave or they retreat. Then the Pharisees come back and they huddle up and they say, well, we didn't get him on that one. Let's get him on. What can we do? Then a lawyer speaks up. No offense to any lawyers in the room. The lawyer speaks up and says, I got it. I got this. Here we come. Now, you know, Pharisees, those 613 laws of the Old Testament that we follow really, really well. Yeah, oh yeah, of course, yeah. What if we ask Jesus, which of those is the greatest? Because no matter what he says, we can disagree with him and get him trumped up on charges of, of heresy, basically. Great. Great lawyer, go for it. So the, the lawyer comes, and then we look at verse 34 of Matthew 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? He said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is Deuteronomy 6.5. But Deuteronomy 6.5 says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Jesus changes the word strength to mind. Now, why would he do that? 
he's speaking to these religious types, these very well-educated people, and he's saying, you've not been loving God with your mind. You've not been loving him with your intellect and all these gifts that God has given you. There's more to God than just loving him with your strength. You have to love him with your thoughts and your mind as well. He said to him, this is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So you've got love God, and you've got love your neighbor. And it's like a hanger. Love God and love your neighbor. And then you've got that bar across the bottom. I looked it up this week. What is that bar called? It's called a hanger bar. It's not very exciting. But you've got love God and love your neighbor. And off the hanger bar hangs all the Ten Commandments, all the prophets, all the stuff that we all know, that they all knew so well. He's saying it all hangs on those two things. And if those things aren't there, the whole thing collapses. Now, let's say you're really good at loving God. You've got that part of the hanger really strong. You have a great devotional life. You pray a lot. You go to church. You take communion. You've been baptized. You have intimacy with God. It's great. But maybe the love your neighbor part, maybe it's not there. Maybe the hanger's way out of balance and it's barely hanging on. He's saying you've got to have both to have balance. All hangs, everything hangs on these two things. Now let's say maybe you're really good at loving your neighbor. You believe in social justice, equality, fighting for the man that doesn't have a voice, caring for the poor, but you're basically a practical atheist. You have no relationship with God. Maybe you don't even believe in God, but you believe in justice for the world. Do you see how out of whack that balance, that hanger would be? Who are you really doing the justice for? But both, he's saying, love of God is best illustrated by love of neighbor. And love for your neighbor is best illustrated by your love for God. They are two of the same. It's not a theory. They're equal in value. And when they're practiced in harmony, we live a more robust spiritual life that's used by God. And Jesus is also saying that the way you've interpreted religion as this vertical only thing is wrong. You cannot say you love God and then treat your neighbors like garbage. As many people have done throughout thousands of years and continue to do. Say they're Christ followers and they treat our neighbors like trash. He's saying there's not just a vertical orientation to our relationship with God, but there's also a horizontal one. And they're both connected. Everything hangs on those two commandments to love God and love your neighbor. It's not just a theory, Jesus says. It's not just a theory. You can't just give lip service, but your hearts be far from God, Pharisees and Sadducees. You see that? See, before I was married... I had a lot of theories about marriage. I had it all figured out, actually, in my wise 25-year-old wisdom. I was convinced that any woman to eventually be married to me was going to be blessed by being with such an enlightened person and a fully developed man. I learned, as I've been married for over 15 years, I've learned that as blessed and as wonderful a thing as it is, that it also highlights my own deficiencies and my own need for grace and my own need to be a servant. And it has grown me in love in ways I never could have done if I was only looking at it from a theory or as an armchair quarterback. Before I was a pastor, 
I would look at pastors. I grew up in church, Baptist, Methodist, my whole life. And I'd sit in the pew and look at the pastor and I would think, is that even a real job? What do you do all the time? I could do your job. I could do that. I could be more fruitful than you. I, could, I theorized it. I could, I could do that. When I was a youth pastor for many, many years, teenagers would ask me, so what do you do from Monday to Saturday? What do you do? Is this even real? And I, and I knew I, I could do my job better than that guy. I could be so much more fruitful than him or her. And then now that I've done it for so long, I've realized that it's not just a theory. I put it into practice. You see that it's about, it's about people. It's about relationships. The church is not buildings. The church is people. We're living stones that he's used to build up the temple of God. And, that, and that, that's what's most important is people and being patient with them and kind with them. And, and, sh- and really praying is so much a big part of this role. Praying for his church, praying for our, the people in the church and leaning on him in my deficiencies and my weaknesses. But I never could have realized that if it was just a theory and I was armchairing, armchair quarterback. Or before I had kids, oh, I had, I had raising children figured out. I knew exactly how to raise children. I was going to have perfectly obedient kids, no fights. They're going to grow up to be missionaries. They're going to be like Enoch and just go directly up into heaven. They're not even going to die. Like I had it all figured out how to be a perfect parent at age 25. And I would look at other people with kids and go, you're not doing it right. They're, that's not organic food. How could you do that to them? That the house and our van would be simultaneously clean at the same time, all the time. I was going to have it all figured out. Then I became a parent. And we had a toddler and a, and a baby, and my parents would come over and look around and go, our messy house, and go, how's it going? Going good? Got it all figured out, huh? All right, we'll see you later. Now that parenting is not just a theory, I've learned that messiness is okay. Breaking things is fine. Challenging our authority, that's not okay. We don't let that slide. But I've learned about patience. I've learned about embracing the mess and, the, and teaching resilience and integrity and grace and praying for, together as a family and with my children, blessing my children nightly, doing more than I ever could have imagined. And it's pressed me beyond my, my comfort zone and, and grown me in ways as a man and as a, teaching me more about love and about selflessness than I ever thought possible. And on and on you could go. You can theorize about things all you want, but until you actually do it, it's a little bit different when it has a collision with reality. See, how you envision things is rarely how they actually go. Loving God and loving your neighbor is very simple in theory, but until you actually do it, it can get messy, the good and the bad. And this is what we learn about Jesus here is that love is more than a theory. But in, when you actually do it, it can get messy, but it's a blessing at the same time. My parents gave us, for Christmas, an Instant Pot. Does anybody have one of these glorious devices? I am now an expert cook. I'm a great cook now. I wasn't much of a cook before. But I have cooked so much stuff in the Instant Pot. It, it's, what it is is a pressure cooker, okay? Now, growing up, my definition of pressure cooker was a, a, a pressurized bomb that was on your, your stove with a whistle on top, letting you know well aware that it could go off at any moment. And it was sort of malformed, and, and, but it would make delicious pot roast. 
And now, no, 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 now it's computerized and it locks in and it beeps. And, and I have made some of the best food out of this thing. And just a few weeks ago, I made ribs. I've never made ribs in my life, actually. And so, put them in there and do all that. Pressure cook them, put them in the oven, barbecue sauce, great. Great, great ribs. Now, when you're eating ribs, you know, you get a little bit messy, right? That's kind of the fun of it. You get all messy and your face gets all, especially when I had a beard, that was a real problem. And then you're, you have to clean your hands off. They give you little wipes if you go to the restaurant, you know. And, and making, eating ribs is fun. It's a blessing. I'm eating pork. That's good. But it's not always clean. It's not always neat. Jesus, as we heard about last week, isn't afraid of messiness. He's not afraid of tension. He doesn't, it seems like he doesn't care. When he calls out Zacchaeus from the sycamore tree, there's thousands of people walking this thoroughfare. They're all walking and listening to Jesus as he's teaching. And there's the little short tax collector that nobody likes is up in the tree and he's trying to get a view of Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and goes, Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm having ribs at your house today. I'm coming over. Now, the political fallout, the, the social stigma that could have come with such a moment, Jesus does not care. He doesn't care what people think. He goes directly to Zacchaeus. If you look at Jesus' life, there are so many stories. Mary Magdalene, the woman at the well, the woman who was bleeding for 12 years. You could go on, the blind, the lepers, all of these people. He was not afraid about being messy and getting into their lives. They are people that Jesus sought to love. And he was drawn to them because no one had ever loved them like that before. No one had ever loved them like he did. The reason Jesus was drawn to all those people is this. They had no love in their lives. They had no one that really loved them. No, they didn't. And he was the only one that was going to love them in a way that fully fulfilled every need of their heart and life. And it changed them profoundly for the rest of their lives. They were literally dying for love. And Jesus would give them what they needed the most, regardless of public opinion or political fallout. He didn't care. And I think somebody listening today is like Zacchaeus or the woman at the well. And you are so desperate for love. I want you to know that Jesus will love you in a way that is so beyond what any human being could do in this messy world, he will not turn you away. He will love you so deeply that it will change your life forever. You can have that today on Valentine's Day of all days. If Jesus was never really concerned with political fallout or concern of any of those sorts of things. He was about being, jumping into our attention, jumping into our messiness, loving you and me where we are. Why are we so concerned about not doing the same for our neighbors? What stops us? So I think a lot of Christians, they have good intentions. We know we, we love God. I want to love my neighbor. I'm trying. You know, we don't always get it right, and God knows that. But a lot of times, I think what stops us is fear. It's fear. And it stopped me many times, so many times. I've been out and about living my life, and I've thought, maybe I should go talk to that person. Full disclosure, and sometimes I don't. I wish I had. But it's fear. What could happen? You know, and in good intentions, I've thought that myself. 
God, I would, I would go learn that person's name. I would love them, but I don't want to approve of what they're doing. Or I don't want to show like I'm condoning that sort of behavior or whatever. But you see, Jesus didn't practice that either. I don't think he approved of anything those people were doing. He's God. He's holy. He didn't either. But the difference is Jesus' love is not affirmational. Jesus' love is transformational. It's transformational. There's a huge difference. He loves us as we are, but too much to leave us as we are. He never affirms of the bad or sinful things that we or others do. Of course not. But he loves us in spite of those things. That's called grace. I'm glad that God has a standard for me in my life, though he loves me enough to hold me to his standard. And this Holy Spirit can be strict because he loves me enough to do that. I don't want a savior that doesn't challenge me, but no one is the same after Jesus loves them. Nobody. Nobody walks away the same. And that's our challenge. In his book, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis, Lewis says, there's no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of of your selfishness. I think a lot of times people today, they're running from the thing that they need the most. We reject the thing that we need the most, which is the love of God. And we'll justify it, we'll get all around it, we'll do all these gymnastics to avoid the love of God, but it's the one thing people need, more than anything else, is to be loved. Just like eating barbecue ribs for us as Christians, there is no way to stay clean when you're loving others. And thanks be to God that Jesus didn't have that fear with us. He wasn't worried about his own safety and the way he's loved us. I like, the way, I like the way Mother Teresa says, never worry about numbers. Help one person at a time and always start with the person nearest you. Jesus was always with people. He learned their names. He learned their lives. He learned their stories. And here's the deal. A lot of them never started to live good Christian lives. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. But he loved them anyway. Because when love's not a theory, but it's an action, it does change the world. But we have to be willing to go into those messy places that we don't have all the answers, and we have to use faith and trust in God in those moments. You know, a few moments ago, I shared how before I was married, or I was a pastor, or I was a parent, I had all the answers, and I theorized all those things. And you know what? I thought I had it all figured out, and I'm glad I didn't. I had to learn the answers myself. You have to live the answers, really. It took time, and, I, and even some pain, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. In his novel, Captain Corelli's Mandolin, an old man is talking to his daughter about the secret of marital love between he and his late wife. And he tells his daughter this, Love itself is what's left over when being in love has burned away. That's a, that's a quote. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Your mother and I had it. We had roots that grew toward each other, underground, 
And when all the pretty blossoms had fallen from our branches, we found that we were one tree and not two. See, the longer we're single or we're married or we live our lives in this crazy, messy world and we continue to try to live in love and in action and not just love in theory, it's more difficult than we imagined, yes. But it's also more fulfilling than we ever thought possible and it's by the grace of God. We're better for it. We can, we can stop theorizing and we can start small. Just start small, somewhere little. I mean, Jesus said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It, it doesn't have to be some big, gigantic thing. You know, uh, I've been in drive throughs more than once where someone in front of me paid for my food. I know that was a Christian. <laughs> and I, it blessed me, like a little thing, you know? Or, and then I try to do it for somebody else. So if you're in line for something, do that for someone behind you. Become a mentor of a foster situation or or simply come alongside another adult that you know and, and be there to listen to them. Listen to a, a, learn someone's name that's on the street. Just listen to their story. Sometimes that does more for people than you ever thought possible. Pay for somebody's groceries. Reach out to someone you haven't talked to in a while. Those little notes of saying, I'm thinking of you, all that stuff. When we start small, I think we're going in the right direction. You know, in closing, I was thinking this week, what's one of the greatest acts of love that was not just a theory, but it was like the greatest act of love in all of humanity? See, when I was a kid and I'd sit in church, the church I went to at that time, they had a big uh, painting of Jesus on the cross. And I remember looking at the cross and I'd always think, why did he have to die on the cross? Why the blood? Why the sacrifice? You know, as Jesus was hanging on that cross and he's looking down at a world that rejected him, that cast him off, that betrayed him, that even stole his clothing, the only possession he had. We were running scared. We were denying him, some even mocking the son of God as he hung there. The greatest act of love is not just Jesus on the cross. It's the fact that he stayed on the cross. By his wounds, we are healed. By his action of love, we can be delivered. That here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise. He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. He didn't die for us because we are lovely. He died for us to make us lovely. And it was love that kept him on that cross. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it indeed is your love that we need in our lives. God, if we're honest, our love runs out. It gets conditional. We get tired. We get overwhelmed. But God, your cup never empties. Your wells never run dry. Forgive us for the ways that we have run to wells looking for love that's never been there. It's always been an empty well. But Lord, when we encounter your love, 
we're able to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. God, let's start there. That it's your love that kept you on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whomever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is love. This is the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. And it is your name, O Lord, that we come to celebrate. It is your name that is above every other name. It is your name is the only name that can save. Thank you, God, that you didn't just theorize your love for us, but you did it. 